Hey, what is up, everybody? Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Blake Bins Podcast. I am excited for the episode today, and I, I'm, I'm realizing I say that for every episode, and it's really because I really am that excited to finally be talking about something that uh, I'm pretty passionate about. And first of all, I want to apologize if you're somebody who you follow my podcast with any regularity. I think one of the biggest flaws I have when it comes to my podcast is the irregularity that I actually update this. I had told myself I would start doing two episodes a week, and I was looking at my calendar today, and I realized it's been about 12 days, so goodness, we are due for an episode. I am recording this from my office of my house and looking out the window to see that we got a little bit of snow today, first snow of the season, kind of exciting, kind of fun, not enough to actually do anything with it, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's a good day, I'm staying warm, staying cozy. And since it's a Saturday, you would think that I'd be taking the day off, but I'm just too excited for my business. And so I've been working since early this morning. My wife is working on her business as well. Uh, We are both aspiring entrepreneurs, I guess. She has her business that she's been running for about 18 months to two years, and she is 10 times more successful than I am. In fact, she's pretty much paying all the bills right now while I get my business going, so... A lot of exciting stuff happening with my business, working with a lot of great people, meeting a lot of really awesome and cool people. And today I've been really motivated. I'd started thinking about this topic about five or six days ago. And it's amazing how many times this topic keeps coming up in my conversations with people, but especially when I think about I was working with someone and they were asking me to talk about, you know, what's my ideal client? Uh, who's my ideal client? Is it is it a certain industry? Do I work with, you know, for example, only nonprofits? Do I work with like, say, uh, JB Hunt I've worked with in the past. So like the question comes up, well, do you work with only people in logistics? And whenever I try to quantify the client that I work with, uh, it's really not the industry that is most meaningful to me. And this 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 makes any digital marketers you know, nightmares come true because I can't specify exactly the client. What I can tell you is is the exact client I don't want to work with and the client that makes me run literally the other direction. And it it falls into this topic of ego. And and I was thinking today about you know, what What do I really want to say about ego? I mean, what do I really want to say? You know, because I, I was thinking about what examples do I want to talk about? What examples in business do I want to share? And I, I realized as I was just kind of doing a quick thinking through the interactions I've had with other people's egos, I was thinking, man, I just need to like dump all of these examples on you just to get a really clear sense of how insidious this concept of ego is. Because really, when you look at the most profitable businesses, the most profitable businesses are run by people who understand the concept of relationships. And they understand that in order to have deep relationships with customers, with internal employees, with people who want to go to bat for your business, in order to to actually develop those real relationships, it means putting your ego aside. And on the flip side... The organizations that I've worked with that I would describe as incredibly dysfunctional, that I would describe as totally out of sorts, not having any real sense of what to do, there's usually a leader there somewhere who's characterized by his or her ego. 
And as I'm talking about this, I, I you know, and maybe the best way to do this is just to jump into a couple of quick examples. Because when we think of ego, and I, I've, I've gotten some pushback on this topic. I've had people say, uh, I was actually, I was sharing this topic with a group of people earlier this week. And I had someone push back on it and say, well, you know, your ego is what causes you to have drive. You know, your ego is a good thing. It's what, it's what keeps you from being, uh, I don't know, pushed to the side or taken advantage of. You know, when you have that arrogance or that ego, you have sort of that pep in your step, so to speak. You know, people take you seriously. And if you don't have that ego, then people will not take you seriously. They'll take advantage of you. And they, they, they honestly won't consider you the real deal. And they'll look you over for promotions. They'll look you over for uh, hiring you to help them with their business and so on and so forth. And I've you know, I've, I've thought that through, and it's it's kind of a fair point, right? I mean, it's kind of a fair point that those who sort of demand respect and sort of command this sense of self-security, there, there's a certain admiration in that. But I think, I, I, I think that person is a little misplaced in what they're saying because I feel like you can be totally assertive, self-confident, uh, totally driven, and not be full of ego, because let's be really clear on what what exactly is ego. What are what are the the indicators of someone who's full of ego, who's driven by ego? Uh, you know, where ego is really their one of their primary characteristics. I would say someone who's driven by ego would often say the expression, "I'm never wrong." This would be the person who, whenever something goes wrong or there's some blame to be had, they're often looking to other people, right? Really easy example of my own ego because, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about ego and imply that I don't struggle with it too, but I think about where are my shoes? Why can't I find my shoes? I have looked all through this house. I have a meeting to go to and I cannot find my freaking shoes. Oh, I know. My wife must have moved them. It must be her fault. It must be my sweet, precious wife, Joy. She must have hidden them from me. How dare she? She knows I need my sh And see, my mind goes to all of these places of where can I shift the blame, right? <laughs> I remember Joy and I had this joke running early on in our marriage. I would say it's early on. Maybe she would say I still do this. I try not to. But whenever there's like an important document missing, I always look to her and say, well, do you think you threw it away? As if my wife is like running a side business with like an incinerator where she just has to meet her quota of getting rid of stuff. I, but I, I, I think it's funny how often I go to her because surely I can't, it can't be my fault, right? I can't go to me first and think, well, maybe I misplaced it. Maybe I, this guy who's working with all these professional companies, maybe I was irresponsible enough to actually put it somewhere it didn't. No, it couldn't be that, right? And so when I think of ego, I think of that statement of, I'm never wrong. I also think of a person who, you know, it's the person who, whenever you ask them, what are your greatest strengths and weaknesses? And they list off all of these strengths. And then for their weaknesses, they, they flip those strengths into their weaknesses. So like you ask the question, maybe in an interview and the person says, well, my strength is I'm a really hard worker and my weakness is that I work, I work so hard that, you know, and, and wherever that conversation goes, 
but it's rare that I've ever been interviewing someone and I've interviewed a lot of people. It's rare that I see someone just be authentic and real with their weaknesses where they say something like, you know what, I'm, I'm a pretty poor time manager. Or you know what, I, I, I really struggle having deep relationships or having uh, investing in the relationships beyond my scope of work. It's pretty rare that someone ever says something like that. But so what I want to do today is I, I want to, I want to let's we're going to dive into some case studies, and I'm just going to go through a multitude of, of business examples because what's been amazing to me is, and I'm I'm very particular on the clients that I end up working with. It's actually it's one of the reasons why I moved away from the firm I was working for to now doing my own business is because I really love the opportunity of of getting to be able to choose my clients, right? Because in the corporate world, in the Fortune 500 world, there's no shortage of opportunity for clients to work with. There's actually, especially when you work uh, here in Northwest Arkansas, these businesses are so interconnected that as you work with one business, it's very easy to work with uh, the other businesses that are in that same space because it's very often it, it is who you know. And before I say anything else, I, I don't want to imply that the corporate world is ego-driven. Uh, well, maybe I do want to imply that. I don't know. I, 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 I have noticed a trend of people when they become more successful, they simultaneously become less willing to see their flaws, to be hungry, to be uh, someone who is willing to grow, right? And even if even if you think about yourself, when you were in your teens and maybe in your 20s, maybe you had this hunger, you had this aspiration, you had this appetite to actually move forward, grow and develop. And then as soon as you landed that big job, as soon as you got that promotion you always wanted, maybe as soon as you hit that certain salary level that you wanted to always hit, that's kind of when we put our feet up and say, ah, yeah, this is this is success. You know, we kind of lose that sense of of eagerness and that sense of drive to actually confront our flaws and grow ourselves. Right. And I I actually do see that a lot in the corporate world, especially when sometimes I'm talking with people who, you know, they've grown this this maybe a hundred million dollar business or maybe even a billion dollar business. And when they are confronted with their flaws that are actually keeping them from growing and scaling their business to even more success, one of the immediate quips I hear in return is, well, man, I grew a $100 million business. Why would I need to grow in that way? Why would I need to do? I mean, obviously, I did something right. And obviously, and, and there, was a, there was a phrase that we would say at my old company that I really appreciate, and it's this, this expression of what got you here won't get you there. It's like these things that have driven us and guided us to this point won't necessarily, it, it's not necessarily the same stuff we need to go to the next level. And I've noticed a lot of people who settle, you know, they've climbed five steps up the ladder, and I don't mean the corporate ladder, I just, we'll, we'll just call it the, the ambiguous ladder of life or something. And they take about five steps up the ladder and then they say, you know what? I'm good. I'm good. I'm happy with what I have now. And they don't realize the opportunity that is even five steps further up or maybe even one more step up, right? So talking about this, 
I really appreciate now choosing my own clients because as I start talking with someone and as I usually whenever I'm picking a client, we'll do we'll do kind of a back and forth. We'll ask them about their business. I'll get some perspective. And also I'll do I'll I'll lay a little bit of fishing bait out. If you if you've ever been fishing, you know, you throw the hook out, you have the bobber out, and I'll I'll, I'll cast that out and I'll give a little bit of free advice just to see how they interpret it. And I'm not I'm not looking for someone who just agrees with everything I say because one of the one of the the most phenomenal benefits to my job is that by working with so many different companies in so many different industries, I'm able to really learn a lot about business and about different clientele and about different industries. I got one guy who he runs a SaaS company is what I call it the S A A the S A A S uh, company. And I have no idea what it is, right? Now, there's some concepts that I'm, I can share with him to help him, but you know, you better believe that in our conversations, I'm also, man, I'm listening. I'm really listening because this is one more industry that I really do not understand. And if you, if you know this industry, by the way, you're probably cringing on my behalf because you're like, you did not just call it a SaaS company. I don't know. I have no idea. But anyway... So whenever I'm I'm talking with people, I'm not just throwing the hook out just to feed my own ego for them to say, oh my gosh, Blake, you're amazing. What I'm doing is I'm trying to measure their appetite for growth, right? So let's take, for example, Dan, who runs a logistics company, he runs a trucking company. And so he just took over for his dad. His dad's in poor health. And so now he's the CEO. He's running this business. He's running this company. And the thing that's really intriguing about Dan is when, when we first started talking, his, his basic problem, as he described it, were his employees. He told him, he basically said that they sucked. And he said that these employees, they don't respect me. As he described it, they bag the boss. They bag him behind his back, which was his way of saying that they, they criticize him behind his back. Uh, they they are not respectful of him. They don't listen to what he says. He's, he's kind of going on and kind of bemoaning the fact that his employees don't like him. Well, he's, he's talking about this, and he's, he's basically asking for advice. And, and, and Dan's issue is not unlike 99% of other conversations that go this way. Typically, whenever someone comes to me, and actually, if, if, if I can just kind of break from the story for a second, kind of keep that in your mind for a second. I was having coffee with a guy, and this is a guy who just got out of, he's right out of college, and he basically said, you know, I want to go into business coaching. I want to go into business consulting, and I, we were just kind of talking through, you know, what are some steps he can take to actually get into the field, to actually start working with businesses, and so I, I prompted him with this question, and I said, let's say a business owner comes to you and says, I have a problem with my employees. I have a problem. Most of my employees are having a tough time. They are not good employees. I'm always having to check on them. I'm always having to, uh, and they wouldn't say this themselves, but micromanage them. What should I do? What's your advice for me? And so I, I pose this scenario to him because it's a pretty common problem. I get this question a lot. And I asked him, you know, what would you do? And this guy said, well, I mean, I would probably monitor the monitor the employees, see what they're doing wrong. I'd probably develop some procedures to help them do things the right way. I'd probably find ways to hold them accountable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so he had like, you know, all these different ideas for what he could do. And they're all perfectly fine examples. And then he looks at me kind of like, is that the right answer? <laughs> and I, I smile and I say, no, it's not the right answer. I mean, it could be a right answer, but 
99% of the time when a CEO or an owner comes to me and says, I have a problem with my employees. The problem is very rarely the employees. The problem is you. The problem is the boss. But see, from this person's perspective, oh, it can't be me. I'm the boss, right? It's got to be my employees. Because let's just think about this logically, right? Assuming you're not an awful hirer, which some people are, sometimes it really is the employees. That's fine. Now, I've never actually worked with someone where that was the problem. But sometimes people are just poor hirers. They don't know how to hire. They hire people who they don't match up with their own value system. And that's that's a whole different conversation uh, and something that's that's easily solvable. Normally, though, when people say, I have a problem with my employees, the problem is not the employees, the problem is them. And I don't know if I've told this example before, but, you know, I, I had uh, a, a company, for example, I was working with, and they were saying, you know, we're really having a tough time with our employees. They really are being really obstinate. They're being, uh, they're, they're complaining a lot. They don't feel like we know what it's like to be in their shoes. How dare they say that? And there's a lot of pride that gets involved in this of how dare they, you know, do they even know what we're doing, for, you know, and all this kind of like, and it's even funny because anytime someone talks to me with like their situation, they always try to do like the pull on sympathy from the get go of, you know, we're doing all this stuff for our people. And well, so we're talking about it. And, uh, I ask, well, what, you know, tell me about the typical work day for your employees. And it's like, well, they come in usually at 5 AM and they usually stay till about 3 PM and yada, yada, yada. And I said, okay, okay. Well, later in the conversation, we're unpacking this further. And I say, well, how, what time do you guys come in? I'm talking to the executive team and they kind of laugh at each other and look at each other and they say, well, uh, I come in around 10 o'clock and someone else is like 10 o'clock. You're not in until 11, you know, and all these kind of back and they're just joking with each other. But I'm watching this happening, thinking, no wonder your employees hate working for you. No wonder they think that you have no idea what it's like to be in their shoes. They're at work at 5 a.m., which means they're probably up by 4 a.m., maybe even earlier. And they have people who just sort of casually walk into the office close to lunchtime. But see, it's tough when you're when you're on the other side of it to really understand that I am the problem. And it's also really hard, especially when we talk about ego, it's hard to understand that what we're doing to actually help people or to make our employees feel valued, those aren't the things that are actually making your employees feel valued. In fact, it's totally, we, we see this a lot like in the culture world when we talk about how do you build a business that has a high performing culture. You know, we're talking about Gallup would call them highly engaged employees. It's the employees who, from a revenue standpoint, they're earning 10 times more than the other set of employees. It's about 15% of your employees on average. And so when we talk about the people who getting getting a culture of highly engaged employees, the way you do that is not through no tie Friday, or casual Friday, or I remember when I was working in Houston, we had really tough bosses. I mean, these were people who they would these these principals, and I was a teacher in Houston. These principals would walk into your your classroom. And they'd only be in there for a minute, so they're only seeing a couple of minutes of an hour long lesson. And so they're in there for just a minute. They're just doing a walk around. They say nothing to you. They don't leave any any feedback to you. Then they walk out, and then at the all team meeting, they'll totally throw you under the bus. They'll say something like, "I was in a science teacher's classroom on the first floor 
uh, whose first name starts with B, you know, I mean, like they, they do everything to not say you specifically, but then they would just trash you and you would think, man, I feel totally taken advantage of, man, I don't feel valued at all, man. I had, I just had this student vomit all over the desk in the middle of the lesson. I just cleaned it up and got this class back under control. And that's when you walked in, but see, we didn't have that conversation. And so, you know what I'm saying? And so you, you have these, 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 and I remember going back to that time in my life. I remember my principal being really pissed off. Seriously, I'm, I'm, I mean, literally pissed off because they had catered in lunch for us on Teachers Appreciation Day, which is one day out of the year. They catered in lunch for us, and then I remember the principal. I said something like, "Hey, really nice, of you guys really appreciate it." And she goes, "You know, it really just ticks me off that people have a problem with us when we're making this, we're getting this nice lunch for you guys." And I remember thinking the issue isn't the lunch. I mean, it's a nice gesture, but it doesn't cover all of the other issues of mistrust of us not having the resources we need. You know, the copy machine is always broken. It doesn't, but, but see, you can't have that conversation because ego convinces us that our misaligned efforts are actually solving the problem when really we have to look at ourselves and say, wow, I'm I'm actually just a really bad boss. So going back to this logistics company, going back to this guy named Dan, we're talking and I, and like I said, I like to, I like to throw the fishing hook out and just, just see how they respond to a little bit of feedback. And so we're talking and I say, well, how long have you been in a management position? He goes, well, this is my first, my first time in a management position. He was working for a different company. His dad went into poor health and so for the benefit of his dad's company, he basically moved back home and decided to take over the mantle of running this company. And I said, okay, so never been in a management position before. He goes, no, never been in management. I was like, okay. So tell me more about what's going on with the employees. He's talking about it some more. And I say, well, uh, tell me more about the problems they're having with you. And he goes, well, it's really inconsequential stuff. It's not important stuff. My issue, though, is the lack of respect they're giving me. Yada, yada, yada. And he kind of just blazed over this topic, just didn't really give it any kind of, of attention. And so already I'm starting to get a sense of this person's appetite for growth, this person's appetite to really look in the reflection, to really look in the mirror and actually grow and change. And then, and then this is something, by the way, that I always hear. <laughs> he said, I am extremely self-aware and I know my strengths and weaknesses. And I've just noticed, I mean, I think some people actually are self-aware, but I've noticed that anytime someone tells me that, I can usually bet that they are not actually (laughs) self-aware. They are blissfully not self-aware whatsoever. And in fact, Harvard Business Review did a study on this in terms of the the amount of people who say that they are self-aware and are actually self-aware. And the way they did this was... They had these people fill out a self-survey on how they were doing across all these different leadership capacities. And then they then they gave those same surveys to the people who work with them and know them really well. And the people who where their self-surveys match what other people said, those are people who are actually self-aware. Well, so the people who say they are self-aware, the percent that is actually self-aware is 10 to 15%. Only 10 to 15% of people who say they are self-aware are actually self-aware. And this is over three years of data that HBR has been doing on the topic. That should scare you to death. 
Because it means that your perception of yourself does not match what other people think of you. And it's less about, okay, so people think differently differently of me than I do. And it's more about what are the blind spots that I have that are keeping me from influencing people in a positive way. In the case of this CEO, this guy running this logistics company, his lack of self-awareness is keeping him from actually understanding how do I manage my drivers appropriately so that they can then be part of a productive, positive culture where now I want to go work for Dan, the boss. Because right now, their behavior is, I hate working here, I don't like working here, and their motivation to put their best foot forward, it's not really there, it's not really present, right? So we're talking more about this. He lays out the the winner of the line of, well, I'm really self-aware. And I say, okay, yeah, sure. And and typically what I try to do is I try to, I try to, not be totally direct and candid. I tried to kind of be, not necessarily beat around the bush, but I it's more powerful for the person to realize it on their own accord than for me to tell them and try to convince them. And so I start asking questions. I start asking, you know, well, what management experience do you have? Well, I don't really have any, but again, I'm really self-aware, so I know how to do this well. And I say, what have you been reading? You know, what books have you been reading? You know, I'm just trying to get a sense of who are they, where are they going to grow and learn? And I find out very quickly that this person is doing nothing from a growth perspective, which says something about a person. You know, first of all, you would assume someone jumping into the CEO role with no management experience, you would think that that person would say, well, crap, I got to really figure this thing out, but not in the case of this person. So we're talking more about it. And I say, well, tell me about their complaints. And he says, well, one complaint they have is I don't listen to them. And I say, okay, let's unpack that. Why do you think they don't think you listen to them? And what typically happens in a healthy conversation is the person will say something like, well, geez, I don't know. And they'll start thinking about and racking their brain. And then they'll realize there is something that that they themselves are doing that is now not validating the criticisms that the employees have for them. It's kind of like if you go back to, uh, you know, there's one company that they, they, the CEO was saying that she listens to her employees and then came to find out that the way that she thought she listened was through a suggestion box and didn't know that the suggestion box was actually getting dumped into the trash by the janitor at a certain time of the day. And so the only suggestions she was actually getting were like a tenth of the actual suggestions. And so she's like, oh, yeah, of course I listen to them. Well, they don't, they don't think that you listen to them, right? And it's very much this concept of perception is reality. And it's like whenever I talk to people and they 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 put in front of me a perception that someone has about them. What they're looking for is for me to validate them and say, well, those people are idiots. They don't know what they're talking about. But what's unfortunately true is that perception is reality. It is reality for people. So if your people don't think that you listen to them, guess what? Whether you do or do not, you don't listen to them in their eyes. So in order to earn their trust, in order to actually build a relationship where you can actually manage them well, where they respect you and they want to actually do what you're saying needs to happen, you have to find a way to validate in their minds that they're being listened to. doesn't mean that you always do what your employees say, because often they don't have the exposure to the the level of strategic decisions that you're you're having to make for the sake of your own company, right? But on the same token, there's a way to validate and then explain 
and then verify to someone, hey, this is why we aren't going to do this, or that's a great idea. Here's how we're going to incorporate that. Well, so I start asking these questions. We start talking about this, and this guy is just totally rebutting every remark. You know, he's, for example, he says, they think I don't listen to them. And I go, well, do you listen to them? Well, yeah, of course I do. And he goes on this long rant about how he listens to him. And he, you know, in his mind, he has like the one situation where he very heroically listened to one employee's suggestion. And he gives some other criticisms and we kind of talk more and more about it. And again, I'm just asking these questions. I'm kind of just throwing the line out just to see this person's attitude. And and usually the way these conversations go is when the person is not being self, they're not realizing their own pit holes or their pitfalls. That's when I usually will become very candid and direct. And so I, I eventually transfer the conversation to instead of asking questions, I'm really just trying to directly coach this person. And so I say, Dan, if your employees feel like you aren't listening to them, let's talk about how you can make them feel heard and really build that trust factor with them. And so again, he kind of pushes back on this and says, no, 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 I, I, I don't need to change. I, I need some advice on how do I confront my employees? How do I confront them on their feedback to me? And he has even this idea, excuse me, he even has this idea of calling each person into his office one by one and saying, I've heard you had you have some criticisms of me. If you don't like the way I do things, there's the door. And I said, okay. That is definitely one idea, probably won't do much for building trust with your team. If a boss did that to me, I probably wouldn't think, geez, I can't wait to work here tomorrow, right? And finally through, and I know the story is getting kind of long, finally through like a 30-minute conversation, I just eventually said, look, Dan, if I can be honest, I think your ego is keeping you from understanding how you need to grow as a leader. And he kind of got quiet for a minute. And I said, you are someone with zero management experience, zero, none. You've never managed anyone in your life before. You have employees who are criticizing you and rightfully so because they don't feel valued by you. And rather than trying to dig in and understand how you can better yourself, instead you're complaining about how you feel like they don't like you. I said, man, it's coming across as you being very thin-skinned as a boss. And he kind of listened for a second. And he said, well, I just don't know what to do then. And so I gave him a book and said, you know, first of all, I'd start reading, man. I'd start learning. You know, I'd start growing. And I think, you know, what's what's whenever there's kind of a hard point of conversation like that, people typically do one of two things. They either say, wow, you're right. I need to grow. Or they say, no, Blake, you're an idiot. <laughs> Get out of here. And so moving on, let's let's talk about that that second second option there. I had a guy named Scott that I was working with. And Scott was a pretty uh pretty interesting case where he was a 27-year-old guy. I think he was from what I understand, he he had had a pretty phenomenal sales background. He was really great at sales. And his boss had promoted him into a director level role for his company. And Scott was, uh, I think the average age, from my understanding, the average age of this director level role is like 42 years old. And so he's like 15 years ahead of the game. He's doing very well for himself. And the way I, I come about meeting Scott is his boss, who is the VP 
who's running this whole department. His boss had been one of my coaches. We had worked together and his boss had a really positive interaction with me and really enjoyed working with me. And so about eight or nine months after working with his boss, his boss calls me up and says, hey, I have a guy who could really use some help. And so I say, okay, let's talk, let's figure it out. So he introduces me to Scott and Scott's a really, I don't know what word to describe it other than just like, it's interesting or it's funny because right off the bat, when I call Scott and I say, Hey Scott, great news. Your boss has paid for five months of coaching for the two of us. His reaction was very defensive and it was like, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why, why am I getting coaching? What's going on there? You know, why am I, I'm a great leader. I'm a great boss. And what's, what's interesting is actually typically most of the time that a boss will pay for coaching for someone is because they see them as a really valuable employee. They see them as someone who's worth investing in. Right. And so I I kind of explain that to him and say, you know, look, you're obviously doing very well for yourself. Your boss just wants to help. Your boss just wants to continue to develop some skills in you. Well, Scott has this really great idea. He says, you know, I have, I have a really great idea. Why don't we just say that you and I are meeting and then we don't meet because it'd be a waste of time for me because I really don't need to grow. I mean, I'm already doing really well. How about we don't meet and I'll tell my boss that we have been meeting and it's been phenomenal. Man, I'll say you're the most incredible person I've ever met. I'll really talk you up and that way you still get paid, you still get a satisfied customer, but I, don't, I just don't have to waste my time with this meeting. And I say, okay, well, um, I think that would be really unethical. <laughs> Let's maybe not do that. And I say, Scott, let's just do one. Let's do one coaching. Let's see how it goes. Let's see if you feel like it's beneficial. And if you don't think it is, then what I will do is we will, I'll I'll refund the money to your boss. I'll say, there's no need, you know, I don't need to help you. And he says, okay, let's do it. Well, in the meantime, I say, okay, for our first coaching, I mean, I want you to go around and I want you to ask your people, your people that you're managing. He's managing a team of about, I don't know, 12 or 13 people. And I say, I want you to go around and I want you to actually ask your people, what do they think of you? And he says, okay. And so about two or three weeks go by, maybe about a month goes by. And at the same time, I am also asking his people what they think about him. And I'm collecting the data, getting an idea of, of what his direct reports think of him. And, and there's nothing positive in this. I mean, there's not a shred of positivity. I mean, these guys, these people totally just rip him. They eviscerate him. I mean, they completely tear him up. I've never gotten feedback so harsh about a person. In fact, one person said, Scott is not only a horrible boss, but a horrible human being. You know, you don't say that about someone that you don't feel enormous angst to. Right. And so I'm kind of understanding, Okay, this actually is one of the rare situations where the the boss is paying for someone to get some serious help because they really need it. And so we finally meet. I've collected all this. I've collected all of this data and I've had his employees. We're using what's called a 360 where people are they're rating him from from a scale from one to five. And and Scott gets all ones, basically. Maybe there was a two somewhere in there, but basically all ones, which is the worst you can get. And so I put the data in front of Scott and I said, take a look at this. And people typically, whenever they get their data like this, they have, everyone has a similar reaction. They say something like, my gosh, I had no idea. I didn't know people thought this about me. Because again, we we aren't we very, it's rare that we're actually self-aware, right? And so 
That's usually what people, when they're exposed to what people actually think about, then they say, oh my gosh, I have to get better. Not in Scott's case. He looks at the data, he looks up, and then he says, oh my gosh. And I'm like, yeah, right? And I'm thinking he's about to have this revelation. And he goes, I need to fire these people. These people are idiots. They don't know me at all. And he gets very defensive towards the people and I'm, I'm just kind of shocked. I'm stunned. I've never seen someone get such harsh feedback and then be unwilling to accept it, right? So we talk more about it. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm trying a lot of different methods. I'm trying to kind of beat around the bush. I'm trying to ask questions to help him understand it. And then I, I eventually, I just, I transition straight to being very candid and direct. You know, look, Scott, you have people who hate working for you. What are you going to do about it? It's not just one person. You have a staff of 13 and not one person has a redeeming quality to say about you. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? And he just, he says, I don't think I need to do anything about it. This is their problem. They need to, and he's saying things like they need to grow up. They need to mature. And I was just blindsided. I just could not believe that this person could not understand his issues. So we finished the first coaching and he's like, oh yeah, this is really great. Thanks, man. And I'm like, yeah, okay. And I go to his boss and his boss says, you know, how did it go? What do we need to know? And I said to his boss, I'm going to refund you your money because this, this is someone who is uncoachable or at least in my experience, this person's uncoachable. This person's not worth the investment you're making in him. He's unwilling to see his blind spots. Even with the most brutal truths, he's unwilling to accept how he needs to change and grow. And then the conversation got really negative because his boss said, do you think we need to fire him? And that put me in a really awkward spot because I was thinking, I've never really had to recommend someone to be terminated but I also thought about the health of his department and just my, in my expertise working with really great people and really not so great people. And I looked at him and I said, yeah, I, I, I don't see this person doing well any longer. We talked more about it and I came to find out that Scott hadn't, I, I wasn't the first coach that Scott had got. He had actually had plenty of interactions before me. His boss had actually sent him and I remember in the conversation with Scott we were talking about this concept of listening. And I said, you know, do you listen to your employees? He's like, yeah, of course I listen. I said, no, no, no. You know, maybe you hear them, but do you really listen to them, right? Do you really make them feel heard? And he says, you know, it's really funny we're talking about this because my boss sent me to like a two-week seminar in Chicago on listening and leadership or something something titled like that. And it's about being a an effective listener as a leader. And he just could not understand why his boss had sent him to that. And I just thought, yeah, <laughs> there's a reason you're bossing you to that, right? Well, so Scott ended up getting let go. He did get fired. And I just remember how tough it was to swallow that whole thing because I thought this is a person whose ego has essentially ruined his career. Not, and that's too harsh to say. It hasn't ruined his career. It's, it has ruined a career pathway, though. Right? I mean, you have this person who finds tremendous success. You have this person who, who again, is ahead of the game for about 15 years, but because of his unwillingness to see how he needs to grow, it totally killed him. 
It killed his career. It killed that direction for him. And then now he's having to restart somewhere else, go somewhere else. Now, I don't know what happened to him. I don't know where he is now, um, other than just being immortalized in my stories to people of what not to be. But I really want to hone in on this because I, I, I think I think what keeps us from being successful, it's not like a deficiency in skill. And sometimes it is. Sometimes it really is. I mean, sometimes you have people who through tremendous coaching, they just cannot get it, right? And it's like, man, I really like you, but going to have to go a different way on this. And that's fine. The majority of time though, I've seen people go from unsuccessful to successful because they're willing to actually look at themselves and realize how do I need to grow? And especially when we talk about management, when we talk about managing people, it's not about being the boss that everyone likes, has nothing to do with being liked. It's about being the boss who can really unleash the talent of your people, about being a boss who can really cause your people. And, and, and Steve Jobs said it really well, that when you bring on an A team, you want to unleash them in a way where they run circles around everyone else. You know, where you you bring them in and then you let them do what you hired them to do, right? And so that's what this concept is all about. It's what's keeping me from actually influencing people to be that, right? But but instead, we are so obsessed with, I have to assert myself or I have to prove myself or like, what if someone doesn't think that I know what I'm doing, right? And so our ego, and as we kind of develop this chip on our shoulder or this pep in our step, our ego keeps us from coming face to face what's actually wrong. And 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 I I'm, I'm just I'm through my head. I'm thinking through the examples of clients where I felt like I wasn't successful. And there's plenty of clients, by the way, who I think of where I'm like, man, my own my own lack of ability helped me from keeping that client to actually be helped. Right, it kept me from actually getting that client where it needed to be. You know, I I was the person helping them, and I shouldn't have been the person helping them because I didn't know what I was doing. Right, and so. There's, there's definitely people where I've missed it. You know, I, I definitely, I don't want to, because I'm, I, as I'm talking about this, I'm realizing I don't want to be, so, I, I want to actually be self-conscious. I want to realize that I'm not like blaming everything and realizing that I have my own ego that I can't, I can't move past, right? But through a lot of the clients that I would call unsuccessful, and there's a lot more that are successful than unsuccessful, but of course, you know, of course the unsuccessful are the ones that really keep me up at night and really really um, bother me. A lot of those clients are are people who could not break past their ego. In fact, I'm thinking about with my previous firm, we had a client, it was a marketing company. And sometimes what we'll do is in order to actually show people and teach them a concept or to help them understand a deficiency, we'll do what's called experiential learning. And so we'll give them like a very simple task to do as a team. And hopefully through that task, they realize, oh, this is, a, this is a problem we have with our process. So a good example of this would be I had a CEO who, who came and said, I have a problem with all of my employees, you know, kind of your typical expression of the problem is them, not me. And we gave them this task where they had these wooden planks, like these little two by fours that they have to arrange in a square maze-like shape. And to teach them how to do this, we give them a handout that has the design of the shape drawn on it. And ideally what people do is they work together by, they look at the drawing and then they they organize the shapes in the way they're supposed to go. Well, so the CEO has told me, you know, my, my team, 
my team really struggles working together. So we give him this task and the CEO right off the bat is hoarding information. He's holding on to this paper, this drawing, and he's trying to delegate and tell people where the drawing, where the planks go. Well, naturally, if you're in your, if you're a, a visual learner, you'd want to see the drawing yourself. And so you have some of his team who are coming up to him and saying, hey, can I see the drawing? Can I look at it myself? And he's taking it very personal. He's realizing, or he's, he's, he's very insecure in this. And so he's saying things like, you know, guys, just trust me. You know, why don't you trust me? And in fact, the team starts kind of turning on him to the point where he finally says, this is why we're here, guys, is because you all are unwilling to trust me and work together to actually solve a problem when the problem isn't really the team, the problem is him. And I remember one of my coworkers pulled him aside and says, dude, you got to stop. You got to see what you're doing here. And it clicked for him. He said, oh my gosh, you're totally right. So we will do something like that to help people realize problems they have, right? And so we're working with this marketing team. And in working with this marketing team, we have this very simple task. And we actually, we I say we, I don't work for my firm anymore. But for my firm, they would do this activity for a slew of groups because it's very easy to do. It's very simple, but it says a lot about the team. And the way it works is you have these numbers that you set out on the floor. So imagine like, Imagine a large circle and then imagine like a cutout of numbers from like 1 to 20. And what you do is you just randomly place the numbers in the circle and you tell the people, it's kind of like Twister, you tell them that they need to press and hold each number ascending from 1 to 20 or whatever the number is. And you tell them that they need to press and hold the numbers in ascending order until all of them have been pressed. And maybe you'll say something like you can't speak while you do it. And we'll do this with groups as young as maybe 18 or 19. And we'll even do it with senior senior teams. And it's, it's always a very quick and easy activity. And most teams will do it really well. Well, with this marketing company, we had been told that they were really having a, a, a tough time uh, identifying some problems they had, and especially communication, and especially their willingness to work together. So we give them this activity. And they fail miserably. It's, it's actually, this might be the only team I've ever seen actually fail at this activity. They fail miserably. And immediately they're totally pissed off about it. They're yelling at each other. You know, they keep pressing the wrong numbers in the wrong order. They keep trying to start over. And I had a, a woman with me who was on staff with me who was helping lead this activity. And so she's actually trying to help walk them through sort of the self-discovery of what did you learn from this, right? And And ideally, you'd have a team that would say, wow, we really need to work better together. But instead, there's so much ego in the room that they're unwilling to even identify what went wrong. And this this really isn't that uncommon in business because it's, it's, it's hard to come face to face with how you suck. I mean, really, it is. And Donnie Smith, who is the former CEO of Tyson, we were talking about what was what was one of the biggest problems he saw at Tyson? And he said, one of the biggest problems were people's egos, where once they became a VP, that was part of their identity. I'll always be a VP, and I will never sacrifice my VP-ship for the sake of you, for the sake of someone below me, or for the sake of this company. And so if I'm somebody who I own a boat, I will always own a boat. I will never sacrifice that for your benefit. And so what you found where, and and Jim Collins talks about this in his book, Good to Great, what you found 
were bosses who would put the blame on employees or who were unwilling to change, grow, and develop because they found so much security in their ego. I got it under control. I know what I'm doing. I'm good enough. You know, Jim Collins, when he talks about it in his book, he talks about it as the example of the window in the mirror. And the window in the mirror is a very simple concept. Great leaders, when things go wrong, they look in the mirror and they say, wow, what needs to change in me that's keeping me from making this organization successful, making myself successful, or making my leaders successful? And then when things go really well, they look out the window and they they point to the people who made it happen. Bad leaders, they flip it. When things go really well, they look in the mirror, they feed that ego, and when things go poorly, they look back out at their employees and say, it's your fault, it's your fault. You know, and they point from employee to employee to employee, and they go, they hire a coach or a consultant, they say, can you fix my employees? And it's like, yeah, I can work with your employees, but really the issue is it's you, right? And until we can die to our ego, until we can realize how much we need to grow, we are keeping ourselves from greater success. And frankly, we're holding our businesses hostage. You know, I think about it from the perspective of, there was a great article written on the difference between an amateur and an expert. And it talked about how the amateur is the one in the room who tells everyone how experienced they are, how they have it all together. That's the amateur. But the expert is actually the one who is a lifelong learner who their perception of themselves is that they're an amateur and that they still have so much more to learn, right? And, you know, I'm not, I'm not separate from this, right? I mentioned it earlier. Man, I would love to be able to say, oh, I'm totally part of the 10%. That is, um, you know, self-aware, who knows myself. But the older I get, the more I realized, I, I am realizing how how I fall short, right? And it's not something to beat myself up about, but it is something to keep a constant level of appetite related to, I need to grow, I need to move forward, I need to continue to further myself. You know, a couple of examples of this, I remember when I was younger, and I'm I'm a pretty sarcastic guy, but I remember when I was younger, I thought that my sarcasm was hilarious, (laughs) and it is hilarious, but I thought everyone loved it. And I had some relationships that really went by the wayside. And I remember kind of mining and figuring out like what happened there. And I had people say back to me, you're kind of a jerk. And it wrecked me because I love people. I love people. And it wrecked me to know that my sarcasm was actually keeping myself from having full, deep relationships with people. And the other example, and I can't remember if I've told this example before or not, but I had a friend of mine, I was at a men's group, we were meeting uh, one morning, and he was talking about how he there were these five qualities that are true in every great husband. And he said that he took those five qualities and he went to his wife and he asked his wife, I want you to rate me from one to five. Five being, I'm doing really great here. One being, I totally suck. And I want you to rate me from one to five and then I want you to tell me how I need to grow. And he's sharing the story of how he does this. And then he challenges us and says, I want you to now go to your wife and ask her, for her to rate you in these five areas. And of course, you know, when you're, when you're, again, think about ego, when you're in front of all these other people, it's like, yeah, yeah, of course. 
but I've never asked my wife about those five areas. And I think it's because my ego and my, my addiction to my image of myself is keeping me from actually getting the real perspective. You know, and it kind of makes you think about how many people are you going to who hold you accountable and keep you growing? Who are the people in your life who say, hey, here's where you need to grow. Here's where you need, here's where you need to develop. Because I think sometimes we're very careful about that. I remember I had a, a CEO who everyone had to do self-evaluations and then group evaluations. And so everyone had to evaluate everyone else. And everyone got evaluated except for the CEO, which is probably the one position that needs to be evaluated. And I think, I think, he, I think that was a person who was, who was unwilling to be faced and be vulnerable with, how do I need to grow? The reason all of this matters is not only can your ego totally train wreck your career, I think our ego can keep us from actually growing and having greater success. I think it will be the roadblock that ruins us and keeps us from actually becoming the people that we're intended to be. You know, there's people in our lives, and this this is not said to be hokey. It's not said to be motivational. There are people in our lives that we have an opportunity to impact for the better. We have an opportunity to influence them in a positive way. But our unwillingness or our lack of drive when it comes to overcoming our ego and bettering ourselves will keep us from having that impact on people. You know, I think about the people who have had the greatest impact in my eyes, either on me or just people in general. And it's people who have constantly been looking in the mirror and saying, who is the man in the glass and how does this person need to change? Who am I and what do I need to be working on, developing, and growing in? If I'm really going to be an influencer, if I'm really going to impact people in a positive way, I have to be able to come to terms with how I suck and how I need to grow And I need to be willing to put my ego aside and have people be able to give me some really hard feedback. Ever think about someone in your life who you can't give any kind of feedback to? You can't give any, even even the slightest of suggestions to? Either they're too insecure or they're they're too combative or they take it too personal. That is someone who for the rest of their life will be told the same things and will never do anything about it. It's like being told, hey, you're a little abrasive. And then 20 years later, people are still saying, hey, guess what? You're a little abrasive. I don't know about you. I don't want those things to be said about me. In fact, when I was younger, I had, man, I had a real jacked up perspective of management. I used to think that making people cry was a really great quality of a leader. (laughs) Seriously, I thought if I make people cry, I am... I'm doing the tough love approach and I'm, I'm doing due diligence by them. I'm, do, I'm treating them well. And it wasn't until later that someone was like, you're nuts. Seriously, you're abrasive. You're kind of a jerk. Well, that was years ago and I kind of had, and, and maybe I developed some ego around that in, in terms of I don't deal with that anymore. Well, I was working with someone a few weeks ago and she's, uh, she's, she's in her early 20s and we were just exchanging ideas and just talking and she said something along the lines. Cause I, I think I had made a remark on, I always want to grow and she had worked with me a little bit and she said, can I give you some, can I give you some feedback? 
And right off the bat, I'm thinking this person is 10 years younger than me, right? What does this person know? What does this person know? What gives this person the right? I mean, all of those, all of those things that my ego wants to say and be defensive in, right? But I swallowed my pride. I moved my ego aside and I said, absolutely. What do you have for me? And she goes, Blake, you can be a little abrasive sometimes. The thing that I thought I had put to death and moved aside and gotten over years ago, the exact same thing that someone's telling me three weeks ago. So that should be a clue to me. I can do one of two things. I can either indulge in my ego and say, what is this? This person's an idiot. This person doesn't know me. Or I can recognize, okay, I'm getting some feedback that is similar to feedback I've heard in the past. It sounds like I still need to keep growing in this area. It's only by doing that that we can have the impact, the influence, the change we want to have with people around us. So wherever you are today, my challenge, if you're willing, find someone who knows you well and ask them, how do I need to grow? And when they tell you, (laughs) don't be a punk, don't say, how dare you? What do you know? You're an idiot. But when they give you that feedback, say, thank you. And then legitimately consider, what do I do with this? Where do I go with this? How do I move forward with this? Because it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the people we can impact. And there are a lot of people we can impact. It would be a shame not to because we're so addicted to ourselves. We're so addicted to protecting who we are. That's all I got today. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can email me at blake at goodadvicecoaching.com with your questions. Always willing to give some free advice. Always willing to help out. Feel free to reach out, stay connected. And above all else, thanks for the support and thanks for listening. I'll catch you later. See ya.